We are in uncertain times. It's the unseen enemy. The COVID-19 pandemic is sweeping the globe with fear riding shotgun. The virus originated in the province of Wuhan, China, which could not contain the contagion until it was too late. Much like the genie in the bottle, once it's out, it's not going back. So dramatic are the losses that Italy saw more than 600 deaths in just one day. In Spain, more than 420 in 24 hours. Hello and welcome to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand. We're coming to you from a remote location and practicing social distancing in order to protect everyone. The latest with COVID-19, and we're recording on March 21st, Canada is closing in on 1,000 cases with 10 deaths so far. Dramatic measures have been implemented in Canada to try and slow the spread of the virus. The Canada-U.S. border is closed to all but essential travel. Bars, restaurants, stores closed with the exception of grocers and pharmacies so Canadians can get essentials to survive during self-isolation. That in itself is a fairly new addition to our lexicon as Canadians right up to the Prime Minister are in self-isolation for in this case, his wife was diagnosed after a flight to Britain. With tens of millions of Canadians staying home, schools closed, business as we know it grinding to a halt, the economic impact has been devastating. This week, the stock markets suffered its worst loss ever, ever. Think about that. Bigger than 9-11. Bigger than the economic crash of 2008. The federal government's announced an $82 billion aid package for Canadians and businesses to weather the pandemic storm, but many money minds see this as a first step back and a long road. To paint the picture with numbers, last year at this time, 27,000 Canadians filed for EI benefits. This week alone, that number has ballooned to half a million. Today on the Unpublished Cafe, we'll take a look at the psychological impact of the pandemic, which at one point was embodied by the hoarding of all things toilet paper. Dr. Paul Slovic from Decision Research will join us to explain the hysteria around the pandemic. As mentioned off the top, the virus originated in China, but the issue is how open and honest was the Chinese government with the world when there were consistent reports of the outbreak and the country's inability to contain it. Marcus Kolga from the McDonald Laurier Institute will join us to discuss how the world may reckon with China that played fast and loose with crucial information. We begin the show with a look at the economic impact of COVID-19. We have seen nothing like this in my lifetime. The lion's share of business in Canada has ground to a halt. All but essential services are operating. For employers and workers in Canada, this is uncharted territory. No work, no income, and no certainty. The federal government has called on the manufacturing sector to retool to produce much-needed health care equipment. Now, joining us to jo- on the Unpublished Cafe, Ryan Malo is the Ontario Director of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. And, and Ryan, I want to thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. I would imagine uh, your membership is quite nervous right now. Yeah, they're very concerned. We're hearing an unprecedented number of, of calls coming into our lines, and we're, we're doing our best to survey, but there is a lot of concern with what's happening out there right now. And, and how does the Federation see the $82 billion federal package to help? So I think the uh, federal government has done a good job in responding to the health side of this crisis. Uh, when it comes to the economic side, I think we've seen a lot of steps in the right direction, but I don't think that we have seen the size and the scope we're looking for based on what we're hearing on the ground. And in that case, what are you hearing on the ground that makes you think that this might not be big enough? 
Well, uh, right off the bat, that it has to be more. I mean, we're glad that the federal government is considering a wage subsidy, but 10% is not going to be the make or break between deciding to lay someone off or to keep them on. We've seen other jurisdictions, such as Denmark, cover as much as 75%. The United Kingdom just recently announced that they're going to cover up to 80% of wages. And that's the kind of number that can say, hey, I can keep these employees on uh, during this crisis while my sales and revenue are taking a hit. And that's important because once we're out on the other side of this, the more employers that have their employees still on the payroll, still on staff and ready to go, the quicker we're going to be able to start the economic engine back up. If everyone's forced to go through hiring and onboarding again, it's going to take a much longer time to get things going. It's nice to promise funding, but the key is how fast is it to get in the, get it in the hands of Canadians? Well, that's the other key too. And the nice thing about the uh, wage subsidy, at least so far, the, the direction the government is going is that it's done through reducing the amount of income tax they're taking off of payroll. So it can be done uh, immediately as opposed to having to wait for a bill. Um, this is why we're also calling on governments uh, across the country at all levels to look at the options that don't need things like emergency legislative recalls or new phone systems or application processes, things like uh, delaying uh, tax remittances, particularly on sales taxes like HST, PST, GST, can keep uh, money in business owners' pockets now and help uh, get them the cash flow they need on the ground right away. Ryan Malo is joining us on the Unpublished Cafe. He's the Ontario Director of the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses. Uh, we look at the economic impact of, at least so far, in terms of COVID-19. And, and I guess we should look at that so far, Ryan, because as we talk about this being uncharted territories, we don't know how long this is going to last, do we? No, and, and it's sort of one of those things that's really really stands out when you think about it is it feels like it's been a long time, but realistically, things have only sort of really started getting going, emergency, states of emergency, shutdowns and that sort of thing for about a week at this point. And we, we've we been surveying our business members and they have told us that they cannot take a significant hit to revenue for about more than a month. So we're really looking at a, a three-week window left where governments have some time to take action and save those businesses before we start seeing closures become a little more prevalent and potentially a little more permanent. So financially, your members were not doing well before the pandemic? No, they were doing all right before the pandemic, but the pandemic's already having an effect. Uh, about half of businesses have already already seen a significant drop in sales. Um, 40% of those reporting a drop have seen uh, a hit of more than 25%. Um, and those are numbers as of last week. I can tell you we are actively surveying again preliminary data showing that that number has spiked. Um, so they, they really are feeling a pinch already uh, from all sides. What other support or, or assistance would your members like to see from the federal or, or the provincial government? Well, I think there are some moves that the government can make on the uh, employment insurance side of things. It was good to see the feds roll out a program for uh, waiting the one week waiting period for anyone who is sick or isolated or taking care of someone sick or isolated. Um, that's a positive move. It doesn't help the people who have been impacted economically uh, by the by COVID-19. People have had to shut down because of loss of business, but not necessarily illness. So expanding the programs to cover uh, that sort of thing would be pretty helpful. Um, we think that they should also really consider canceling planned tax increases. I mean, uh, normally what would be pretty big news is we are uh, nine days out from a carbon tax increase. Uh, that's that's significant. That that has had an impact already, and, and spiking that number would continue to have an impact. Uh, the CPP increased at the beginning of this year. It's set to increase at the beginning of next year. 
Um, so delaying things like that would be uh, hugely beneficial as well. Again, because it would keep more money in business owners' pockets, uh, allow them to continue to pay their employees, manage their businesses, and when we're through this, get up and going quicker. You know, when we look at a situation like this, uh, and let's face it, we're uh, in a new world right now. Um, the government, while it's doling out $82 billion in tax credits and in cash, uh, it subsides on people paying their taxes. And if that's not happening, we're looking at it even bigger uh, deficit in debt, are we not? We are. And, and it, is, it is something that is, that is out there um, that governments need to consider that, that you know, we, we need temporary measures right now. We do need the emergency relief, whether you're, you're an individual or, or a small business owner. But that being said, this is all going to come at a cost. And at some point, we are going to need to you know, pay the piper, so to speak. Um, and it is something that we have already heard some concern on on some relief measures. It's great that the government has extended uh, an additional $10 billion to the Business Development Bank of Canada for loans. But there are a lot of business owners looking at a, you know, a loan agreement sort of uneasily and going, you know, I'm going to have to pay this in six months. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to, if, if the economy is going to be back in a place where I can. Um, so it's, it's another side for the government to consider. But yes, at some point, we are going to have to pay for all of this. Ryan, I want to thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Ryan Malo is the Ontario Director of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. When the COVID-19 pandemic hit North American shores, the reaction was fast and furious. Massive lineups at stores to stock up on supplies for self-isolation. When you, would, when you would expect a run on hand sanitizers, face masks, and, and perishable food, it was scenes of people hoarding toilet paper that seemed to define the moment. Now, to find out more about what fueled the fear, I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Paul Slovic. He's president and founder of the, of the Decision Research Group and professor of psychology at the University of Oregon. And doctor, when you see that, that the hoarding of toilet paper, we saw that all on television, what do you see about these people? It seems irrational to me. Well, I think that they are worried about some uh, new, um, you know, uh, very scary threat that uh, is, you know, uh, about to uh, engulf us, or at least that's what we're told. And there's a very relatively little we can do to uh, control it. One thing we can do is to stock up on supplies of things that are important uh, to us. Uh, including not only toilet paper, but obviously other, uh, you know, food items and, and uh, medicines and things like that. So, so in a situation uh, where we are threatened and we are searching for some some way to uh, exert control over it, uh, buying things that we think we might need and not be able to get is one way to do this. You mentioned control uh, a couple of times just here, and and. How 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 important is that for for people when they're facing a a possible risk? It's uh, it's extremely important. So uh, I, with other colleagues, have been studying uh, people's perception of risks from all kinds of different uh, uh, threats for more than forty years. And one of the factors that's uh, most important in determining the sense of of risk and and people's attempts to you know, uh, uh, react to it is whether or not they think they can control it personally and uh, whether or not they think that uh, the authorities, the health officials and the government uh, also uh, can control it adequately. And I think in, in both of these 
um, uh, levers of control, self and government, uh, we, we feel are, uh, you know, not, not where they should be, <laughs> not what we would like them to be. We would like to have a, have a vaccine. We would like to have a, uh, a medicine, a, you know, a pill we could take that if we got this, it would make it go away. Uh, we don't have that. Um, at the governmental level, we see that, that there's uh, likely to be shortages of uh, hospital uh, beds and, and respirators and things like that. So, so uh, uh, control is, uh, uh, you know, is is lacking uh, in a certain sense here, and that that really ramps up our uh, perception of risk. How much of the unknown plays into the way we react to to uh, a situation like this? Uh, and I look at, you know, and we've seen when when a hurricane is going to hit the U.S., you know, people are stocking up on plywood for their windows. They're, they're stocking up on fuel. They're, you know, you know, I guess you know what's coming as opposed to, in this case, a pandemic. You don't know what's coming. That's the issue. Uh, yes, uh, uncertainty is, is certainly central to all this. But even with a hurricane, what, what, you, what you see is a projected track. It's not a straight line. It's not a, it's not a narrow line. It's a, it's a, it's a band. It's kind of like a funnel uh, thing which says, well, it's, you know, it's likely to go in this way, but there's some margin of error on it. But at least you have some sense of, uh, of where it's going and, and the boundary. So it is uncertain but it's kind of bounded uncertainty with, uh, with coronavirus. We, we don't know the bounds. You know, we don't, we know that this thing uh, increases uh, um, rapidly and w- we don't know, you know, is it going to be 30% of the population, 70% uh, uh, in Germany, the, Angela Merkel, Merkel said that she expected 70% of the population in Germany to, uh, to get the virus. But so we don't, we don't know uh, where the boundaries are. Uh, because it is new and unfamiliar and extremely contagious. Would you call these reactions hysteria? Uh, no, uh, I would. I would call them <laughs> fear, uh, mm-hmm. uh, anxiety, uh, which um, you know, and and hysteria sort of suggests that it's an over overreaction. I mean, sure, some people are having strong reactions but i mean this is a this is a serious threat especially if if you uh, are older and uh, immune compromised or you you uh, are you know have uh, contact with such people uh you know this is this is a dangerous thing so i i don't uh, i don't think hysteria is the right is the right word for it and in fact in many ways um, uh, people uh, may be underreacting. You know, they, they may not be taking it seriously enough. So I just uh, saw a, a poll that was uh, conducted by a University of Southern California nationwide uh, poll of I don't know five thousand people, and it seemed that that a high percentage of people felt that they personally were at low risk from the virus. You know, that they were unlikely to get it, and if they got it, it would be mild. And so uh, I think that uh, you know a lot of people uh, feel at this point that they are you know still at at low risk. Uh, are they delusional, or uh, is that just uh, they're trying to be the glass is half full? Well, the the thing about the virus, which makes it so uh, insidious and difficult, is that it, it is uh, spread. We use the word exponentially. That that each, uh, on average, a person who's who's uh, 
infected will will go on to infect, let's say, two other people. Uh, and and if each of those two other people infect two other people, then suddenly you've got it growing. You know, uh, one to two to four to eight to sixteen to thirty two to sixty four. It, it's growing uh, in what we call an exponential curve. And the thing about an exponential curve is that when it starts out, it looks very small and innocuous, and then suddenly it it takes off like an explosion. And you know, and uh, and it's you know, each each step is double what it was before. If in fact the, the you know, this is a doubling type of, of phenomenon, and so so it, it takes us by surprise. It it's kind of smolders and looks looks small until it isn't, you know, and suddenly mm-hmm. it's wildly out of control. So that's what we want to want to stop through you know social uh, through I, social distancing and isolation. Uh, is to you know try to keep that uh, from taking off the way it it might. So there is that that threat. So so it's a it's a very real and serious threat. And we've seen and you see what's going on in New York City, how it's uh, exploding out. And we see what happened uh, in Italy and earlier in in China. So uh, that's uh, that's the threat. Is that you know everything looks looks kind of low key and calm until suddenly it isn't. Can the the fear that that we uh, described uh, be exacerbated by constantly watching and listening to news and access to social media about this? Uh, I think that what we're what we're hearing on the media uh, is very very uh, worrisome because the media, and I'm not saying that the media is doing the wrong thing. They are reporting the data they're getting about the you know uh, increasing spread of this disease so they're you know it's now you know they, they report how it has spread from you know the first reported case in the u.s to you know in one state and then it it it, it spreads to other states now all 50 states you know there's cases and then within each state it starts to spread so they're reporting the spread and, and what they're reporting is the number of cases and the number of deaths they're not really focusing much on the the uh, the percentage of cases that are mild or the high percentage of people who are are not infected still so uh, so the news they, they focus on on the news that's worrisome and how it is spreading and that's uh, that's scary the other thing is we see uh, reports which i think are accurate about how the the health uh, professionals uh, are uh, are challenged in trying to deal with uh, with this and also when they're taking care of people they're they're going around in these these hazmat suits moon suits you know which when you see that uh that's very frightening you know and shows that this is not the even though uh, early on people made comparisons to the flu uh, um, i don't recall seeing uh caregivers taking care of patients with the flu in hazmat suits now you are in the the U.S. Pacific Northwest, and uh, we're here, obviously, in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. I, I'm kind of curious, what's uh, the state uh, of Oregon today? Uh, I think we've got about sixty cases, um, and that has you know grown rapidly in in the last week. Uh, I think our government governor is. Uh, Right on top of this, taking very strict measures. I mean, all, all the schools are closed. All the all the universities are shut down. The uh, the uh, uh, final exams for spring term on the people uh, university on the quarter system 
uh, have all been uh, are being done uh, uh, remotely. And then uh, next term, uh, if the, the universities will so far operate, but there will be no uh, person-to-person classes anywhere in Oregon. And and uh, other uh, you know other strong steps are t- are being taken to uh, to shut down non-essential businesses and to and to uh, uh, try to uh, motivate strongly the social distancing. So things are are uh, are. Quite shut down here. Dr. Slovic, I want to thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Nice to talk to you, Ed. Dr. Paul Slovic, president and founder of Decision Research and professor of psychology at the University of Oregon. While the world wrestles with the COVID 19 pandemic, China, the epicenter, has seen its infection rate slow to a trickle. That can describe China's initial attempt at stopping the outbreak and informing the world, according to some. Marcus Kolgas is a strategic digital communications strategist, human rights activist, and expert on foreign disinformation. He's a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute Center for Advancing Canadian Interests Abroad. And he joins us now. And Marcus, you wonder how Canada and other nations could even address China on this. Well, uh, it's something that we're eventually going to have to think very hard about. Um, you know, I, a lot of people have, have questioned whether we should be holding China account or whether we should even be considering this question at the moment. Um, and of course, you know, we, we need to focus on uh, combating the, uh, the virus, so, you know, uh, flattening the curve and, and getting through this, definitely. Um, but we also need to start thinking about how we're going to pay for this because the, the toll, both in the number of people who are sick, uh, uh, the, the, the work that, that, that's been missed, um, you know, hopefully the, the uh, death toll isn't going to be too high, but the economic cost of all this, um, eventually we're going to have to um, consider all of that, and, uh, and I think the toll is going to be awfully high. And the question will be, who, who's going to be responsible for it? Um, and I think the Chinese government, uh, not the Chinese people, uh, I should be very clear, but the Chinese government, in their failure to contain uh, this outbreak in November and December um, and spreading misinformation about it, both internally and externally, um, they really, uh, that really helped enable the, the current pandemic. And so I think it's something that needs to be considered um, in the long, long run, uh, again, to, to address the toll that we're going to be facing. So from your perspective, you would lay the blame on the Chinese government for responsibility? Well, I, you know, I think we need to look at it. I mean, we don't have all the information yet uh, as to what happened. You know, I was in, uh, in Taiwan in, in early December, and I recall seeing on the news that uh, in Taiwan, they were already sealing off the, uh, the borders to any flights uh, coming from Wuhan. Um, and the Chinese, we know the Chinese government knew about this in uh, in, in uh, probably mid-November, late November. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, uh, their failure to properly contain it is is a problem. But you know, I think it's going to take a, a bit of study, and we're going to have to investigate as to how all of this happened, what the chain of events were like. Um, and that's going to be a, a bit of a long, longer-term process. But we need to we need to we need to look at that and uh, and, and consider. Uh, whether the Chinese government was responsible for this. What what did uh, the Chinese government have to gain by not coming clean with the rest of the world about what it was dealing with? Well, I'm not sure whether it was, if they considered the rest of the world in much of this um, in the beginning. Um, this is a totalitarian communist state. And the way these uh, states work, or at least the officials um, who work for the government, how they work is that um, they 
try to escape any responsibility for for any sort of problems, even if it's a health crisis, um, because there are always consequences. Um, you know, uh, arbitrary detention, jailing, torture, God knows what. Um, so it's in the interest of those officials to sort of hide um, any sort of issues that might might occur. So this is how things progressed internally. Um, externally, uh, you know, China wants to deflect any responsibility for this because it's, you know, damaging for the reputation of their brand. And uh, the Communist Party itself in China uh, bases its power on uh, the fact that it's infallible and that it makes no mistake. So um, having you know, anything pinned on them is really problematic for them in the sense of uh, staying in power. So they're going to do all they can to deflect any responsibility from this uh, externally right now. And, and we're seeing that with these disinformation campaigns that are emerging. Um, you know, the, we know that the Russian government already in, uh, in late or sorry, early January planted stories about uh, the uh, about COVID-19 being a U.S. Army developed uh, virus and part of their biological warfare, um, you know, toolkit. Uh, and, and this is something that the Chinese government now is publicly, um, it's an area that they're publicly pushing. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm not sure how much they have to gain, but, I, you know, I think that the Chinese government thinks there's a lot to lose by um, taking any responsibility for this, uh, for the pandemic. What does the Russian government uh, gain by laying the blame on the U.S.? Well, that's not their only narrative that they're trying to push. The European mm-hmm. Union just warned uh, last week that they are pushing narratives, all sorts of narratives. Uh, you know, some of these you know, nonsense about, uh, you know, drinking a bleach, that that will, you know, help cure you. Various different alternative cures for for the virus, uh, telling uh, people that it's, it's not that big of a deal, that they don't need to take precautions. You know, there's a whole slew of narratives that they have out there. But their objective in all of this is to destabilize and wreak havoc on Western society. Uh, and the EU is, is terribly um, uh, dis- not, not disappointed. I mean, they're enraged uh, by, by the fact that the Russians have been doing this, uh, uh, or the Russian government has been doing this uh, since, since January, and they, they need to stop. Um, and this is something that the Canadian government also needs to start addressing, because all of this these uh, these conspiracy theories and disinformation, they trickle down to us as well in Canada. Uh, in fact, there's a well-known conspiracy theory website, Global Research, based in Montreal. That's been one of the main sources of, of this disinformation being pushed out globally. Um, and so we need to do more, and our, our government needs to do more in raising awareness among Canadians about these sorts of attacks. And the Europeans are doing it quite well, and you know, we know the Taiwanese do it very well. Um, we need to start doing it as well to start protecting Canadians. Marcus Kolg is joining us on the Unpublished Cafe, strategic digital communications strategist, human rights activist, and an expert on disinformation with the McDonald Laurier Institute. And, and Marcus, what would the world look like to you if China had been honest with the rest of the world when this first started? Well, you know, I think we have a pretty good example of what may have happened if we look at Taiwan. Um, so I mentioned earlier that I was in Taiwan early December. We didn't know, I, I didn't realize what was going on. It's only later that I realized what, you know, why they were doing what they were doing with regards to um, banning flights from Wuhan. But the Taiwanese government, um, when they detected that there was a problem, you know, they used the experience that they had in the, in the, during the SARS outbreak 
And they immediately started closing their borders. They started taking proactive measures to ensure that anyone who was feeling sick was identified and that um, and people were self-isolating. Uh, and they made sure that information about the outbreak was made as public as possible. Uh, they had these great uh, public uh, um, awareness campaigns where they used cartoons and such to inform the public about what to do and how to stay safe. And this was all done early in January. Um, so they were really quick to do this, whereas the, you know, the Chinese government has done little more than um, deny responsibility, um, obfuscate, um, you know, f- probably fudging the numbers. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure that, you know, they, I know that everyone's reporting that, that China is down to, uh, you know, a, a zero death rate right now over the past couple of days. I'm not sure that we can trust those numbers based on the Chinese government's, uh, past record on uh, disinformation. But, um, but I would look to the Taiwanese and this, this is a group that we can learn from and, and there is a, Right now, there's a new working group, uh, a U.S. government Taiwanese working group that was just announced, I think, three days ago on COVID-19, how to address the current problem, to learn from the Taiwanese on how to tackle it right now, but also in the future. And the Europeans just announced, I think, overnight that they would also be uh, working uh, officially on an an official capacity with the Taiwanese government on COVID. And this is something that the Canadian government, you know, they... They shouldn't worry too much about Beijing's intimidation because, you know, the Chinese government doesn't want us recognizing Taiwan or, or anything about Taiwan or working with them at all. Uh, and we need to get over that and, uh, and join the Europeans and, and Americans in working with the Taiwanese to get over this, this crisis. If we don't do it, I mean, we'll, we'll be left on our, our, on our own. And we really should be learning from the Taiwanese given their success in tackling this, uh, this pandemic. What kind of reckoning do you see for China when this subsides? Uh, you know, that's a good question. That's literally the million or billion dollar question. Um, you know, I, I think we need to start looking at the how responsible certain officials were, agencies within the Chinese government. Um, I think that we need to start considering uh, the application of sanctions. We have, of course, Magnitsky human rights sanctions that could be purposed for this. Um, those individual uh, individual officials, uh, you know, who are involved in disinformation campaigns and such, um, you know, seizing their assets in Canada and uh, ensuring that they they can't travel to this country. That's the first thing that we can do, and that's that's rather easy uh, once we figure out who these who these officials are. Um, the other thing that we need to do is. Uh, you know, certainly looking down the road is, you know, should we diversify our trade um, and not rely so much on China because, you know, we have been bullied by them uh, considerably over the past uh, number of years, certainly over the past uh, 12 to 24 months. Um, and, uh, you know, in the most extreme case, you know, for seizing assets, we need to look at repurposing them. Um, you know, Lloyd Axworthy and Alan Rock have uh, brought forward a proposal to the Canadian government just about, I think, just after the election or just before the, the previous uh, the 2019 election, to to do just that, to see um, to take uh, assets seized by our sanctions regime and repurpose them for uh, to support humanitarian efforts uh, and such. And so this, this is something that we can sort of look at and perhaps even use. Uh, uh, those two former ministers' uh, proposal and, uh, and and rework it so that it, it helps 
us um, overcome the the massive economic burden that we're going to be facing in the wake of this uh, pandemic. So there are a few things that we can do, but uh, but I think we need to give a, a lot of thought as to how uh, we we do do that and uh, and hold the uh, Chinese uh, regime accountable. Marcus, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on it. Marcus Kolga is a strategic digital communication strategist, human rights activist, and expert on foreign disinformation, as well as a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute Center for Advancing Canadian Interests Abroad. These are trying times, to say the least. The economy virtually shut down. Canadians locked in their homes, fearful of even their neighbors. All but essential services shuttered, all aiming to quell the spread of the COVID-19 virus. We're in a world now of self-isolation and social distancing. For how long, it's not clear. I want to thank my guests, Ryan Malal of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, Dr. Paul Slovic of Decision Research at the University of Oregon, and Marcus Kolga of the McDonald Laurier Institute. And I want to thank you for listening to the Unpublished Cafe. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand. <laughs>